time in this series on where is my honor from God. It's something he is very deeply concerned about, as he put very explicitly in the first chapter of the book of Malachi. <clears throat> and therefore, I felt it is worthwhile to spend some time on God in heaven. Uh, it's the most important topic there is, really, for us. It might not be as exciting as maybe some new understanding or new doctrine or better grasp of history or whatever uh, from that standpoint, and yet it's something that needs to be central to our hearts, our minds, our thoughts on a daily basis as to the God that we worship, because it's really all about him, about his plan and what he has in mind to do for us and whether or not he can get it done. If we look around at the world today, it's a pretty sad place. It's full of misery, suffering, discouragement, of abuses of all kinds. And the picture is not very pretty, even as we poison ourselves to death and kill each other with war and whatever means we might have of destroying ourselves under the one who thinks he is almighty. So this is a war that has been going on since Satan first rebelled against God. Who is the Almighty? Satan has not accepted that God in heaven is the Almighty. Now perhaps he realizes it to one degree or another, but he will not give up. He keeps going in the direction he is going, hoping in some way, somehow, sometime, he will win and he will rise above God. And what we see happening in the world today is leading up to his last and final battle to prove that he is the Almighty. He has been allowed before the throne of the Almighty on a daily basis to accuse you and me of all kinds of things, and the pity is sometimes they are true accusations. And if we did not have the blood of our Savior sacrificed for us, then Satan would accomplish his purpose, and we would have to die for our sins. So we need to go through life with the vision, the understanding, the mindset of what is going on in the universe. Without vision, the people perish. And the people of this earth are about to perish over this great war that Satan is waging against God. And then against the people of the earth who are part of the plan of God. And to all intents and purposes, as you look at the world around you today, on the level of human understanding and experience, who does it appear is winning? You'd have to say it looks like Satan is winning based on the facts that are before us. Will it end that way? Will God pull this out? Will he show he is the Almighty? Or will Satan win? How is Satan doing in your life and mine? Winning or losing? Do we have enough vision enough daily comprehension of who God is 
his capacities, his powers, and what he can do, that we are in line to win, or will he win out over us? Daniel 11 shows that some of them of understanding will fall. I would hope and pray it would be none of us. I would hope and pray it would be nobody. But the prophecy is that it will be somebody. We need to capture the vision. We need to understand more vividly, more realistically, in our thoughts and minds on a day-to-day -day basis, what is going on in the universe, what is going on in the world, and what is going on even in our little world. And the powers that are raging and waging there to try to distract us and to pull us away from the goal and purpose that we have. So I think it is very worthwhile that we spend a certain amount of time on who is the Almighty. We honored Him as Creator by reading scriptures about His creation and Him and how it happened. And now we are addressing those which show His almighty power. I want to finish that up today. As I said, 31 of 57 of those particular scriptures which mention Him as the Almighty are found in the book of Job. And they are scattered somewhat throughout the rest of the Bible, not even addressing most holy or most high, but just almighty to narrow it down to some degree. Let's pick it up today in Psalm 68. This is a prophecy. It is a statement of fact, but it is indeed also a prophecy. It is something that is in our hopes, in our dreams, something we look forward to, something we want to see happen, and yet something which we sometimes despair over and not really believe in the way that we live and think and act, that it is imminent. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. That would be from Satan on down. Anyone who is against God, his family, his plan, his universe, his laws, his way of life. So this is an all-encompassing statement, is it not? Let God arise. Let his enemies flee before him as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. Sometimes when you're sitting around a campfire, you'd like to see a little breeze arise to just blow the smoke away, to get rid of it. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. You've watched a candle flame turn wax to liquid, just like that. That's the metaphor here. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. We see a lot of wickedness around us, and here is a request, a plea, that that wickedness disappear. You and I might look around at this world and see a lot of wickedness. We would like to see it disappear, right? We see wickedness in high places in politics. We see wickedness in the cities and towns around us. We see wickedness in our own thoughts and lives. 
and we wish it would disappear. And if we can't even get it to disappear in our own minds and emotions, what can we do about all the greater wickedness we see around us? It's such a pervasive, such a powerful thing. And yet here is a plea to one who calls himself the Almighty to make wickedness disappear. Can this be done? In the realm I live, I cannot see it happen. Do I have faith and belief and hope that it shall? What hope is there otherwise? But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them exceedingly rejoice. It says, in spite of all these enemies that are gathered, virtually everyone on earth is an enemy of God under the Satan system or satanic system that has deceived the whole world. And yet it says, <clears throat> in spite of what you see before you, let the righteous be glad. Be happy. Be joyful. Why? Because we know and believe in the almighty God who can bring this prayer to pass. Now, David, who wrote this, saw a great deal of evil around him. He saw evil that surpasses any evil we have ever encountered or imagined, really, with so many people who would like to see him dead. And he wanted to rejoice and glory before God. And he said, that's the attitude that we should have. <clears throat> but if you don't have the vision and the understanding and the grasp of who and what God is, then it is impossible to have that approach and that feeling. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. We sang three hymns at the beginning of this service. They were songs of rejoicing, of acquiescence and acknowledgement that God is God. I hope we sang them joyfully. I hope that joyful thoughts were in our minds and emotions as we sang them. Or do we do it sometimes perfunctorily, following along because this is the tradition, this is the way we go about it. This is what we do. Therefore, we will stand up and we will do it. Is that what God would desire of us? Or does he want us to sing with our whole heart, with our whole feeling of worship and reverence before his holy name? See how easy it is to fall short in even trivial, it would seem, things, traditional things that we do every week, and yet he wants us to sing with our whole heart. He wants us to sing to the God of the universe, not just mouth some words out of a hymn book. Now, shall I continue this sermon, or am I done? I think we can all see that perhaps we need to continue. We need to grasp what is before us and what we might be leaving behind, and maybe why God was willing to spew us out of his mouth. Because our heart was far from him. It was with him to some degree. 
He loves to hear us sing. I don't know whether he loves to hear us mumble or not. I kind of doubt it based on some of these scriptures. Rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. He is the greatest. He is there on his throne in the sides of the north. And yet he is very, very concerned for the fatherless and the widow. Sometimes it does not appear that that love and that concern and that mercy is there because we may not get everything as a fatherless child or a widow that we might want. And yet on the other hand, we need to abide strong in the faith and the hope that he is going to deliver every need. Do we live as if we believe that? God settles the solitary in families. He brings out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Now God is going to set the solitary in families. Some throughout the church of God are single. They are lonely. They are frustrated. They don't know what to do. There seem to be no answers. Here is a prophecy from Almighty God that those problems are going to be solved. Those who trust in Him, but those who are rebellious will dwell in a dry land and blessing will be removed. O oh God, when You went forth before Your people, when You did march through the wilderness, Selah, David reminds himself of the mighty works of God of the past. And when we get discouraged and frustrated and things seem difficult for us, just think how difficult they were when they were making bricks in Ephraim, in Mitzrayim. Think how difficult they were in the desert without food or without water unless God provided it. The earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. God shook the heavens, he shook the sea, he parted the waters. Is he almighty or what? There are people who will try to mitigate that and say that isn't really what happened. Yes, it did. The Jordan also backed up at flood time when it was time to go across the river into the promised land. No one can do that but God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. Earthquakes, shaking, thunder and lightning and scared the people half to death. Don't let God talk to us. When they began to see the power of the Almighty, it scared them. Do we believe that that power is there, that it is alive? We don't yet see it on a daily basis, do we? We see a little answer to prayer here and there. We see that we made it through the day. We see that we might escape a temptation. We see a little help here and there, but that's about all we see. Now, we've already covered that we are to see Him in the creation because of the beauty, the incredible symbiosis 
in the interaction of everything on this earth that has been put together in such a way that it just keeps working in spite of all the ways we try to stop it with our methods, our poisons, our misuses and abuses of the beauty that is around us. You, O God, did send a plentiful rain whereby you did confirm your inheritance when it was weary. Now he's told us in the Psalms, I mean in Isaiah, that he is going to intervene before the flesh fails before him. And sometimes I think he better do it soon because humanly, physically, and even emotionally and spiritually sometimes we get weary. But you know, in one way I'm thankful that we're out in a dry land where we are right now because you know what? When I see rain fall in the desert, I am always thankful. It impresses me. It makes me feel good to see rain in a desert. Now, God could have put us in the Willamette Valley. He could have put us in the Amazon Basin, for that matter. And rain would not mean much to us. In fact, it would become wearisome to us because it just does it a lot. And you get tired of it. But when you're living in a place like this, you look up and you thank God because it feels good, it smells good, and it lifts your spirits. It's not just ozone in the air, although that has an effect because the calves and the horses kick up their heels and run. But it's exciting. And I think that when we're living in the spiritual wilderness and desert that this world is today, when we begin to see blessing from God, it will uplift our spirits, it will make us feel good, it will excite us. And that's where we are today in this world. Your congregation has dwelt therein. You, O oh God, have prepared of your goodness for the poor. Read Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and how the poor in spirit will inherit the earth and be blessed. Read those scriptures about how the humble and the meek will be blessed. Because we have a world today that is pervaded with pride. It is everywhere. Pride, ego, self, self-centeredness. We are here to be humbled before God and his almighty power. The Eternal gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. So God is going to begin to give a spiritual reign at the end. He is going to begin to bless his people and bless the earth through his people who proclaim who he is, but they will not consider themselves blessed, will they? They will look upon God's people as a curse because they believe they are going to usher in the millennium through almighty Satan, the devil, even though they will not recognize him as such. But they will give all their honor, all their glory, all their feelings, their emotions, their love to the dragon behind the beast. And they will bow and worship before the beast. The whole world! except you and me and a few others. 
who are going to see through it. If it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Now, I'm not implying that we're the very elect. I hope we could even be elect, much less very. But I hope and pray that we will be accounted worthy in spite of ourselves to be classed that way and not be deceived by what is coming because I'm telling you, it is going to be more powerful than we can possibly even begin to imagine. They will not like what we have to say. We will be the only voice against the whole world. Why? Because we believe the Almighty God will win. And we're the only ones on the earth who will believe that because the rest of the world will be deceived. Only that 10% of God's church that he gathers together are going to accept his almightiness. The rest of the church, even, are going to be deceived. Maybe they'll wake up at the last minute, but it'll be too late. And they will die if they keep the Sabbath, or if they look to God in any way, because they will be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Only those who, got, who grasp, who comprehend who the Almighty is will be saved out of it. The Eternal gave the word, verse 11. Great was the company of those that published it. God is giving us the word, and it will be our responsibility to publish it to the whole world. Kings of armies did flee apace. God is going to make his people as a strong, new, threshing instrument like you would thresh grain, Isaiah 41 and Micah 4, I think, or 5. That's the power he is going to give his witness at the end. And she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though you have laid among the sheepfolds, it should be translated, just the sheep. Sheep are pretty helpless, pretty powerless, can't do much. Just lying among the sheep does not make you strong. Yet you shall be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. I find that very interesting in that God is one to provide the gold and the silver. It will be his to build his temple in the book of Haggai. So silver and gold can be both the best teaching. It can also be the highest of blessings on the face of the earth, physically. And I do believe that it shall be both. The scriptures seem to indicate that very clearly. But in just, just instead of a, a little woolly sheep lying there hoping for grass and water, God will cause us to be able to fly with silver and with gold, physically and spiritually. When the Almighty scatters kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. Snow of the mountains. Pure, clean, pristine, white. No dirt, no mud. Beautiful. 
You've looked out right after a snow, and the world is so beautiful. It covers so much that might be ugly, and just beautiful layer of white. Might not be pretty during the blizzard, but when the wind stops and the snow stops and you look out and the sun is shining on a fresh snow, there's hardly anything more beautiful. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan. The hill of God means Zion or Jerusalem or both. And Bashan is a word that means many peaks in Hebrew. So the hill of God, Jerusalem and Zion, will stick up like many peaks. In other words, they will be lifted up before the eyes of the world in such a way as not to be hidden. It's hard to ignore a mountain, isn't it? It's hard to ignore something that is raised up before your very eyes. And this by the Almighty Himself. Why leap you, you high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. So it's clear he's talking here about his people at the end who are going to be given wings of silver and gold and fly like a dove, and the high hills will leap before them. Yes, the eternal will dwell in it forever. So he's speaking of the site of Eden and of Jerusalem and God is going to come and dwell with us there, as Christ says he will do in Zechariah 2. But at the beginning of the millennium, the Almighty <coughs> and his Son will come and dwell in that very place. <coughs> you know, I think it is certainly true, and we've looked at it this way over the years, that much needs to be restored at the end. Herbert Armstrong restored a lot. And we've come to understanding a lot of new things since then. So much truth and doctrine has to be restored. <clears throat> but I think something no one began to realize until more recently is that the true course of history has to be restored. And that's one of the greatest restorations that could possibly be here in the end time. Nobody in the world even knows where Jerusalem is or the promised land. The whole church does not know that. What an incredible thing God has shown. Marvelous. Beyond comprehension almost. That he could begin to restore history. The American Indians don't know where they came from. They think they're First Nation peoples who were here before anybody else. No, they weren't. We didn't understand history. Now we do. I won't go there again today. We've talked about that recently. But just to point how incredible it is what God is doing, even through such as us, to come to understand some of these things so that we can be there to help his people when they come to build that which he wants built. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. <clears throat> the eternal is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. So he's going to come back with power, just like he did at Sinai. We have a marker in the past, and we have markers in the future. 
of what God has been and what he will be. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. No one can captivate God. You have received gifts for men, yes, for the rebellious also, that the eternal God might dwell among them. We see good, we see bad. We have a job to do, and hopefully those who are bad will even come to live among the Almighty and dwell with Him in some, at some time. <coughs> we understand a plan of salvation. But God will ultimately save most of mankind. And there will be very little gnashing of teeth. I believe that. God will ultimately save most. Even though to all intents and purposes and appearances today, Satan is winning. No, he's not. It just looks that way. Do you believe that? Blessed be the Eternal, who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. So David then points out that we should be blessing God and recognizing and understanding the benefits that we are receiving. Maybe we're not receiving all the things we want yet, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our human desires, but didn't we just rehearse some incredible benefits that God has given us already to know who we are and where we came from and where we're going? Do you realize that a very high 90s percentage of the people in the church of God today have no clue where they're headed. No clue about the truth of the future. About the way it's really going to be. All they understand eventually there's going to be a millennium when Christ returns. But they don't really know what is coming between now and then. I'd say 99% of them don't. Now that's probably low. Can we be here, there at the time to help them understand? I hope so. I don't say that to lift us up. I'm just telling you the truth. We are not worthy that God has given us anything. But we need to count our blessings and see the benefits that God has given us and be thankful instead of frustrated over our own difficulties, whatever they might be. Verse 20, He that is our God is the God of salvation, and to God the eternal belong the issues from death. Here is a God who can save us from death, and if we're already dead, as my dad is, as Herbert Armstrong is, as David is, Peter, James, Paul, John. He can save us even from the worms, from the dirt, from the dust. Is that almighty or what? You know, I've seen dead a lot in my life. Dead animals, dead people. Dead's pretty dead. Dead rots. It doesn't come back to life. I've mourned pets that died, baby goats or sheep that have died in my arms. I couldn't do a thing about it. I certainly couldn't bring them back once the breath was gone. Dead. What God do you believe in? 
one that can take away the rot, restore the breath and the life of our loved ones, children that died right after birth? Do you believe in a God that can fix that? Do you believe in a God who will fix that? Who is the Almighty? Can Satan resurrect? Can the beast resurrect? The beast is going to be killing people by the millions, and yet people are going to worship the beast. Unbelievable. And yet the whole world says that's believable. How twisted and upside down can we get? But God shall wound the head of his enemies, and as the hairy scalp of such an one <clears throat> as goes on still in his trespasses, the Eternal said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea, that your foot may be dipped in the blood of your enemies and the tongues of your dogs in the same. It will seem that the whole world is turned against God and is killing all his people. And yet God says, I'm going to turn it around and you will walk in their blood. You believe in someone that can turn around everything that's going on on this earth today. They have seen your goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. They've seen what happened in his church. You know that's what's going to happen? God is going to build his sanctuary, his spiritual temple. He is going to bless it physically, and I believe build a physical temple along with it. And they're going to see it. And they're going to see God's people in his sanctuary. But they're going to die in their blood anyway. It's not going to do any good. Well, he'll turn it around even for them eventually. Second resurrection. They have seen your goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, and the sanctuary. The singers went before. The players on instruments followed after. Among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. It's not just a spiritual organism. But this is speaking of physical singing and rejoicing before God when the world is coming apart. Bless you, God, in the congregations, even the eternal, from the fountain of Israel. He's going to have a fountain coming right out from under the temple, symbolic of a spiritual fountain of truth in his word, but also a physical fountain coming from under the temple. There is little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah and their council, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. We have a whole world that is trying to destroy Israel today. The whole basic world is against the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant world or the Anglo-Saxons or, in a word, Israel. They're intent upon destroying it. And Esau is the prime mover behind it. The Assyrian is merely a tool in the hands of the Edomite. And yet God tells us not to even despise the Edomite. Understand where their prejudice, their hate, their racism comes from because of the misuse and abuse of a brother who stole a birthright. Now we're not to go along with them. Most of the world will. But don't despise them either. 
They were also of Jacob, or of Abraham and Isaac. God will take care of those problems. It's not our problem. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, that which you have worked for us. God has commanded we have strength. And then David says, even yet we're weak. Give us your strength that you have worked. What is coming is going to require our clinging so tightly to Almighty God. Because of your temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents to you. <clears throat> and I think that reflects even beyond what we've been talking about heretofore today, about the new heavens and the new earth that come down at the beginning of the millennium, and all kings will come before God at Jerusalem. He will finally be recognized as the Almighty, won't he? We'll get to that. Rebuke the company. This is a prophecy. We'll read about it again before I'm done today. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of your bulls, with the calves of the people, or the gods of the people, till everyone submit himself with pieces of silver. Where your treasure is, there is your heart, God says. So people ultimately are going to start bringing their silver before God because their heart will have turned, and then they will bring it to God. They try to hold it back from God now by twisting Scripture, by twisting attitudes, by whatever means they use to try to discredit who God really is, and they withhold from Him that which He even commands to be given because they don't believe He is the Almighty, and that he can and will bless those who do what he says. They don't buy that. They don't get that. Uh, scatter you the people that delight in war. So people, people who believe in war and delight in war feel that they're powerful, don't they? We have people today who look upon the American military as a wonderful thing that can bring death and destruction anywhere, anytime, whether it be a desert storm or an Amazonian bombing or whatever you want to call it. We revel in our military and our power and our might in the earth. God says, no, I can destroy that. Delight in me. What are the armies of this earth anyway? God is trying to get something across to us. Why do you need armature when you have God? There is a new world order coming, and a lot of people are buying guns and ammunition. We're not doing that. We don't believe in that. We believe in a host of angels that can surround us, as in Elijah's day. Can't see them, but we know they're there. And we know when it comes right down to it, if we're serving God, He will protect us. So we don't care about guns and bullets for even self-protection. We won't need it because God will protect us. Now how laughable is it, really, when the world has a government and you think you can get yourself a little AK-47, and you will survive. 
give me a break here. But there are a lot of people who think that way, because why? They don't know where else to turn. And even those who say, well, God will protect me through my AK-47, they don't grasp who the Almighty is. I wonder if we do. I wonder how much, how deeply, how much it's a part of our heart, mind, body, and soul to trust in the ever-living God, even to the death. And God has tested his people even to the death. Some he has saved from physical death, like Isaac. Others he told ahead of time, you will die, like Peter and James and John. Not John, the rest of them. Only one would live, and that was John. So he told them ahead of time what was going to happen to them. He's done the same for some in this end time. He's told those who will accept him as the Almighty can live and others will die. How much do we believe that? Princess shall come out of Mitzrayim. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands to God. When God Almighty makes his presence known, it is only going to be a short time until the Gentile nations who have denied God and worshipped every God that creeps, crawls, or sits mutely before them on the counter are gone, and God is going to be all in all, and they will come and worship the almighty living God. What kind of demonstration is that going to take? What power will have to be shown before they stretch out their hands to God? Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the eternal, Selah. We sing praises to God every Sabbath in Him. We are a few who are so blessed as to have the foreknowledge and the words to speak and open our voices, our throats, and sing to Almighty God. Isn't it incredible? The whole world would deny that today, but someday, soon, they will shout and lift their hands to God. Who's going to win? To him that rides upon the heavens of heavens, which were of old, lo, he does send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. He's going to have a powerful, mighty witness in the end. People think Herbert Armstrong preached the gospel around the world as a witness to all nations. What a laugh! What a joke! Did that work shake the world? It woke a few people up. It didn't shake any kings. He barely got in the door and had dinner with them and said a few things about a good and a bad way of life, a way of give and a way of get. It wasn't a worldwide witness against. It wasn't a worldwide powerful witness of whom God is so that every person on earth could see the power and the might of the living God. 
It didn't even come close. Now, I'm not disparaging what he did. What he did was important. And it was a calling work to bring forth people to, from whom God might choose those who would bring the final powerful witness to this world. The world has not been shaken yet by any stretch of the imagination. Elijah has not come and neither has Emmanuel. Because it said when Elijah finishes restoring the things to this earth, Christ will return. Herbert Armstrong finished up a quarter century ago and didn't come anywhere near the things we're reading about here today. The church is asleep at the switch. They're not doing a powerful work. And they'd say, well, you're not either. I know that. God will raise up whom he wants when the time is right. But I'm telling you, our hearts have to get right if we're to be part of it. And we have to recognize who the Almighty is and worship him with fear and reverence and love and emotion with our whole hearts and sing like we do worship him with our whole hearts. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the eternal. To him that rides upon the heavens of heavens. Verse 34, ascribe you strength to God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. So he oversees Israel, and his strength is on high, above the clouds of heaven. O oh God, you are terrible out of your holy places. The God of Israel is he that gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. What a powerful chapter Psalm 68 is. You stop and examine what's really being said. It's not just a Betty by thing to read at night to feel good. It's a powerful prophecy of things soon to come. Let's go to Psalm 91. Now speaking of these things that are about to come, <clears throat> here's another very powerful psalm. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He's about to talk about terrible things that are going to transpire upon the earth and how blessed we'll be if we can sit under the wing of God in His shadow. I will say of the Eternal, He is my refuge and my fortress. I do not depend upon the Navy and the Army and the Air Force of the United States of America. It is going to be destroyed very soon now. God is our refuge. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings shall you trust. Didn't Christ use this same analogy, using himself as a mother hen, and how he would gather, gather Israel under his wings and protect them there? That's what he was saying. He was probably thinking of Psalm 91 when he used that analogy. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. 
You shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day. War is coming. We are not to fear it. Don't fear that conspiracy, he says in Isaiah 8, he says, fear me. Nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Now, mediocre Christianity, sort of obeying God, will not bring this kind of protection. It is the acknowledgement of the living Almighty God and His power and His abilities and utter total worship of Him that will bring this kind of faith, this kind of confidence, this kind of hope, and this kind of protection. Without those elements, we will be left out there with the rest of the world. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. We won't feel it. We'll just see it with our eyes. Because you have made the eternal, which is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation. You dwell with the most high. Daily, walking with him, talking with him, searching his word to find out what every little thought, every little attitude that we have should be. I'm trying to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. And that is an unbelievably difficult thing to do. It is not our nature. Verse 10, There shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. That's an incredible promise right there, isn't it? We're seeing plagues begin around the earth, and they're going to get worse and worse and worse. But when the time comes, it will not come near our dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Much less an army come and destroy you. Remember what I said earlier about the thousands of angels around that could not be seen, but that were there? Yeah, that's what this says. You shall tread upon the lion and adder. Poisonous snake. Didn't Christ tell the disciples? Snake won't hurt you. What happened when a poisonous, poisonous asp bit Paul on the hand when he gathered wood? He had an eye problem, didn't see it. Picked up the wood, snake bit him. Shook it into the fire. Sat down and had dinner. Everybody was saying, you're going to die, man. But he didn't. Didn't even swell up. Then they thought he was a god. Thought he was a god. No, God fixed his hand. The real God. See how shallow people are? You do something that looks important and they worship you instead of the God who did it. Find the true God. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. God knows your name. You're written in the book of life. He knows you. He counts your hair. 
Nothing happens to you that he is not very, very intimately aware of. He keeps a very close watch on you and me. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Ultimately, when this is all done, we'll have not only life long upon this earth for honoring our Father in heaven and our fathers on this earth and our fathers in history, but he'll give us eternal life for honoring him as the almighty God. Isaiah 13. Uh, let's pick this up about verse 6. It's talking about lifting up banners and the burden against Babylon. Against who is the king of Babylon? Satan the devil. God is going to start warfare in the end time against Babylon and the United States of America and especially its government are the leaders of Babylon today. So when he destroys Babylon, I think it was clear in that series, he's going to destroy, first of all, the United States of America. I was talking to someone yesterday who just simply does not believe that. They think that the American will and the American purpose and the American mind and mindset of overcoming evil with good is going to prevail and America will survive. How do you change that mindset? The only way for that mindset for change, or for it to change, is if God destroys America. That's the only way Americans are going to give up that dream. That view of themselves, that self-righteousness that we possess just by being Americans. You've got a whole state that says, we're the only one that can secede and we will survive if the whole nation goes down. They carry it one step further even. Texas will survive. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. How self-deceived and self-righteous we can be. Incredible, isn't it? There are those who might be in Alaska who says everybody else will die, but we'll eat moose and we will survive. It doesn't matter where you go. It's the same. Human vanity, human ego. doesn't matter. Can we see that for this idea of how great we are to go away, we have to be destroyed as a people? Sad, but true. Howl you, verse 6, for the day of the eternal is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from thee, Almighty. God is going to settle the issue once and for all right here in this end time that we are living in. Let's go to Ezekiel 1. Let's understand this. God gave Ezekiel visions. And he saw this incredible vision of a chariot of fire 
with the angels in it, and I won't go through the whole thing, we've been there, but the face of a man and a lion and an ox and an eagle, and they went in the heavens above and were bright with the light of fire. Perhaps geologically it was volcanoes, but also these chariots are in heaven and are the conveyance of Christ and of God. But notice down in uh, verse 24. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters. Have you been to Niagara? Have you been to Victoria Falls? Some of the places where the thundering cascades of water come down and you can hardly hear it's so loud. That's the voice of the Almighty. As the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of a host, when they stood, they let down their wings. And it goes on to describe the power, the mobile throne of God, and so on. But the mightiness and the power is what I want to, to point out here as we move on. Chapter, well, let's go, chapter 10, verse 5, says essentially the same thing. Let's go on to the book of Joel. Here are words that came to Joel from God. Hear this, you old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your father? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Now, Israel has told what God did at the Red Sea. Israel has told what God did at Jordan. It has been passed down from generation to generation. Now, Joel is saying here with a message from God, Listen, old men. He's speaking to an aging generation of the church right now because this is a very now-in-time book. It's all about the intervention that Almighty God has on this earth. So it is here. And this is something that will be passed on generation after generation after generation of when God took charge. Then he talks about destruction that is about to come. He says, wake up, drunkards, and weep. Howl, you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. All the things, and wine represents wealth and prosperity, all the wonderful things that we thought we had, the material goods in this material nation, where an iPod is about as important a thing as there is, or a flat screen, or whatever. It's all going to be cut off from before you. For a nation has come upon my land. And he says they're going to just destroy things like locusts coming through. What an incredible thing God is about to do. Notice verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the eternal is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God, even the church. Who would have thought 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that the church would just lapse into utter destruction, be splintered like hitting an icicle with a big hammer? And yet it happened. We had a vision. 
of getting a phone call and jumping on an airplane and flying to Jordan and living in Petra while all this happened. And it didn't happen. It was a skewed view. And we need to be very, very careful that if we have a skewed view, we change it. And we come to a better understanding of the way things will be. And what it takes to escape what is to come. We thought, just going along, keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, and trying to get in our half hour of prayer was enough. No, it's not. We have to come with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul and worship God with the fervency of our whole heart. And then we will find Him again. Otherwise, we're going to be in this destruction that is to come. That's just the way it is. And He is almighty, and there is no stopping it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Uh, here, chapter 6. Paul is speaking of a time of salvation here in chapter 2, or chapter 6, verse 2. A time, a day of salvation have I succored you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. So he was telling them, those people back then, now is your chance. This is a day of salvation. They were among the first to be first fruits, a few from the Old Testament, and now these people who are being called into the early New Testament church. Now we are at the end of the process. The 144,000 first fruits are almost complete. There are only a few births or pews or chairs left. And we are the candidates to fill those. So now is a day of salvation as well. It has continued from the time Christ started the New Testament church until today. And will continue for a very short while now until the cutoff period comes and the 144,000 are complete. In times of years, it's a very short while. It's been about 2,000 years since this was written almost. And we're almost at the end of that time. So it's upon us. Verse 14. Be you not unequally yoked together with the unbelievers of this world, with what we see around us. We're not to be yoked with them. We're not to look and act like them. We're not to talk like them. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has God with Baal or Belial or with Satan? It's only two ways, God's way and Satan's way. And you're either walking God's way or you're walking Satan's way with those who are walking that direction. For what part has he that believes with an infidel, one who doesn't really believe in the true almighty God? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This world has its idols. They may not be Buddhas. They not, may not be sticks or stones necessarily today. They're probably more made with metal and plastic than they were then. That's the only change. They've, gods have been modernized somewhat. For you are the temple of the living God. We are the ones within whom His Spirit dwells. 
As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we're to be set apart from the rest of this world and be the ones God is dwelling in. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you. There is the condition that God puts down. Well, it's not the only one, but it's the major one. We have to separate from this world and its evil way of thinking and turn to God and walk with Him, and He will receive us. If we do not, and if we refuse, for whatever reason or justification we might have, then He will not receive us. That is clear. You can't walk down both sides of the street. It cannot be done. I will receive you and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Eternal Almighty. He is the one who makes the cuts. He is the one who decides if he can see the difference between this world and his people. He makes that determination. You might be with the world in some ways and thinking, I don't go to the extremes they go to. I just hang with them. God says you can't do that. He says you have to walk with Him and with His people, His temple, not with this world. Does that mean we can't work with them at all? Does it mean we can't have some concourse with them? Christ ate with the publicans at times. He was more of in a teacher position in that case. So he worked with the world. So did Daniel with kings. So did Nehemiah and others. But if there was any difference, their, their social life was not with them. They worked with them. And there we need to make a difference. They're walking one way and we're walking another way and you can't walk with them and expect to serve God. You can't do it. We cannot compromise with this world. The Almighty is the one who makes the judgment. We do not. We might think we're okay. Can we judge that? It was saying, I'm okay, that got us in the trouble in the first place, wasn't it? I am rich and increased with goods, I have need of nothing. I'm doing all right. Now, none of us would say, because after all, we've read Revelation 3, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We're not going to say that. There's nobody in the church I know of who would say that. But they'll say it in attitude. They'll say it in mind. They'll say it by the way they act. I'm okay. What I'm doing is all right. How does it stand? How does it stack up against this? We'll even say, well, you know, with our kids, we can't be too hard on them, they'll leave. You're going to let them just go ahead and compromise then? That, brethren, is human reasoning. That is carnal logic. It is ungodly. It is un-2 Corinthians 6, if you will. 
It is a wrong approach. It will not work. God says so. Now, he is not going to receive us unless we walk the walk. And he is the one that judges that. We judged we were okay in worldwide, did we not? And what happened to us? Is our judgment good enough? Let's ask ourselves that question. See, he makes his proclamations and his judgments here. And we either go along with them or we make our own judgment, which we will be made with a deceitful, desperately wicked mind, which deceives itself. God's judgment is much deeper and much harsher with us than our own. Now, our judgment with each other may be harsher than God's, but our judgment of ourselves is usually not that bad. Thankfully, he is our judge. Now, let's wrap this up in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 8. Indications of God, the Father, in heaven being the Almighty One, are sprinkled through this book, so we'll touch upon them quickly. Uh, verse 8, he makes a proclamation right at the beginning. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Eternal, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So he says, throughout history, from the very beginning until now, and in the future, I am the Almighty. Now, people may not believe that. They may believe Buddha or Allah or Satan, in whatever form he comes, is Almighty. And as strange as that seems to your, your ear and to mine, 99 and 9 tenths plus percent of the people that walk the face of this earth today will deny that God is the Almighty and will accept Satan as the Almighty. That's what's coming down. Now, since we think we know the true God, that seems strange to us. But that's what God says is about to happen. So, at the beginning of this revelation of God to John about things that would be right here at the end time, he proclaims almost immediately, I am the Almighty. <laughs> As you go through this book, you will see that there is a great deal of debate about that statement. Chapter 4. Here you have a chapter talking about the throne of God set in heaven in verse 2, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like an emerald. So bright and shining and gem-like is the view of the throne of God. And around about the throne were 24 seats, and upon the seats 24 elders, sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had 
on their heads crowns of gold. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we see in chapter 1 and other places, Zechariah, that those seven spirits are the angels of the seven churches of God, of which we are part. So in that heavenly cast, on that stage, there are angels there worshiping God. And what a beautiful place it is. Transcendent, transcendent with rainbows. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second like a calf, third had the face as a man, excuse me, about to blow my voice out here. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And these sat before God singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, as in chapter 1, verse 8. And then Satan comes before this glory and this power and these songs and these hallelujahs and says, guess what, I'm the Almighty. Do you think that one who comes into this scene and says, wrong, I'm the Almighty, has a chance? How self-deluded, how self-deceived he is. <coughs> and yet he is going to convince nearly every person on earth that he is right. How incredible is that? Verse 11, you are worthy, O Eternal, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Here we sit. We were created for God's great pleasure. And he says it will be his pleasure to give us the kingdom of God. Of all the things he created on this earth, the animals, the plants, everything, the seas, the earth, the mountains, were the most precious thing that he created in his mind, his eyes. You would give up everything you have to save your child. That's the way he feels about you and me. Dirty and snot-nosed and dirty diapered as we may be. That's the way he feels about us. He loves us. And he wants to clean us up and grow us up and have us resplendent, perfect and mature and powerful as he is. That's his goal and his purpose, to share his almightiness with us. He will always remain the almighty. But we will be given power as kings and priests over the earth and share that throne with him. What an incredible thing. Chapter 11. Some things have to change, however. First, <clears throat> here is a chapter where it talks about the two witnesses who are supposed to uh, measure the temple of God and then turn to the Gentiles eventually. And they're going to be given such great power over the nations of the world and bring plagues and 
preach a witness that God is almighty. Notice down in verse 15. The time they die, three and a half days later, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which are and were and are to come, because you have taken to you your great power and have reigned. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time of the resurrection and all of that. He made a proclamation in Revelation 1 that he is the Almighty and he was and is and is to come. Now if the world just believed that, one chapter in Revelation would have been quite sufficient. Wouldn't have needed anymore. But the world and we didn't get it. So he kept writing. He kept giving a vision. And he is going to show the whole world by the time we get to the end of this book that he is the Almighty. And Satan will be bound a thousand years and cannot deceive the world anymore about who the Almighty really is. He will be deposed. God is going to take down all nations and peoples. And that's what this is talking about until the time of the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 15. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. War, famine, pestilence, plagues, water turned to blood, all of that will transpire and they will still hate Almighty God and worship Satan with all their hearts and go his way with his society and his mark and his economy. They will have accepted it. And then the seven last plagues are going to come on this earth. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand upon the sea of glass having the harps of God. Why does God have us sing before him now? It's paving the way. It's preparing us to stand on the sea of glass with harps and sing to God with our whole hearts because we recognize really, finally, who really is the Almighty. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the songs of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Eternal, and glorify your name? How glorious that will be. Can you imagine that day? It's hard for us to even grasp that we're no longer human and physical and have natures which are against God 
and are selfish, and it just goes away. And we worship God completely and totally. You know, we're told to change, to grow, to overcome, to be different. But try as we might, we're not going to make it completely until our change comes. Then our very nature will change. And we'll worship God as the Almighty on the sea of glass. How incredible that will be. Think the righteous aren't going to be resurrected and taken to heaven? Yes, we are. We're not going to stay there but a year. We'll come back after the honeymoon is over. The day of the Lord is finished, a day being a year. And then we'll take up reign on this earth with Christ and the Father. And Satan will be bound into that story. But let's see if just a few more here. Because this theme continues. That's what all this end time horror is all about, brethren, is determining, establishing, recognizing who is the Almighty. If we can just get the picture now, if we can comprehend, if we can live it, it will be given to us. And we will be given power over the nations even before Christ returns because we will be part of the end time witness before the world. It isn't just two. It's his whole remnant church who are his witness that he is God. You are my witnesses, he says in Isaiah 41, that I am God. This is the biggest thing he is trying to get across to this world, is who he is. And he's trying to get it through your thick head and mine, who he is and what he is, and get us to turn from this world and turn to him with all our hearts. And we're not getting it. We aren't. What is it going to take <coughs> for us to turn from this world and the things of this world which we so love he is going to take it all away. Are we willing to pay the price and divest ourselves of it now so that we rise above it and show him that, or show the world that he is God in our lives? What's it going to take for us to give up Babylon, Baal worship, and Satanism? What is it going to take to give up Hollywood? Huh? You still go watch satanic garbage. Every one of us takes it in one way or another, and we allow it in our heads and in our hearts. What will it take to put Almighty God first, foremost, and only in our lives?
Am I reading these scriptures today just to hear my head rattle? I hope my head will quit rattling because the screws are loose and I'll firm it up and I'll believe who is the Almighty. I'm doing the yelling, but I'm yelling at me too. It's really God who's doing the yelling, brethren. All I'm doing is reading His Word loudly. It's Him. I can't do a thing about the way this world is. Can you? I can barely do anything about even me. He will show His almighty hand. He will send the seven last plagues. He will destroy most of the population of this earth after Satan has destroyed his part of it. God will take care of most of the rest. And we're going to find out who is the Almighty. Nearly everyone on this earth believes Satan is the Almighty. And if they don't believe it now, they're going to believe it in the next few years. There are very few candidates on the earth of recognizing who the true Almighty God is until He shakes the heavens and the earth with His almighty power. Now let's read on just a little bit more. Saw frogs come out of the mouth of Satan. Verse 13. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Satan is going to gather up all the kings of the earth, all the peoples of those kingdoms, and they're going to come and fight Almighty God in one final last battle. That's what it's shaping up to. Let's see how it ends. Chapter 19, <clears throat> verse 15. Christ begins to come. Riding on a white horse, his vesture dipped in blood, verse 13. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Does this sound like sweet Jesus you hear about in the Methodist and Baptist church? I don't think so. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The King, the Lord. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and, all, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, 
and with him the false prophet that worked miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple therein, the kingdom of God comes down from the heavens, and the bride with it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. This is how it's going to end. The Lord God Almighty is going to win, and Satan is going to be bound, and evil is going to disappear. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Everything in this society on this earth today is either going to die and be gone, or the people will repent and turn to God because that's all that is going to survive what is coming on this earth. And of Satan's society and his culture and everything that is in it, it is all going away. And the only thing that is left will be those which are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 